This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Leader Books, Michael Hyatt's monthly book club for leaders. You can learn more at leadtowin leaderbooks. Hi, I'm Larry Wilson, and this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. Today, we've got something a little different for you on the podcast. It's a highlights show. Now, 2020 is just halfway over, but it feels like we've been through two years rather than just six months. A lot has happened. And we've tried to address some of what's taking place in our world and in our businesses here on the show. And with that in mind, we thought it would be helpful to pull out some of the best bits of advice and insight of the last six months or so. Hopefully, you'll find something new here or learn to apply it in a new way to your leadership. And if you want more, we'll have the links to all the episodes mentioned in this show in our show notes today at lead2.win. So let's get started. One of the things we've talked a lot about lately is crisis leadership and what it takes to lead in the face of resistance. Now here's Megan talking about one of the key elements of leadership, this from episode 117, how successful leaders overcome resistance. Tool number two is integrity. This happened to us actually when we launched the Full Focus Planner. So, you know, we have as a part of our vision script, the the document that really contains all the components of our vision that you talk about, Dad, in the Vision Driven Leader, you know, we have a vision for how we treat our customers, that we want to create a wow customer experience that lives kind of under the marketing section of the vision script. And that means that we take total ownership of the experience that our customers and our clients have, that that the, the, the end-to-end experience is our responsibility to make excellent well, in 2017, when we launched the Full Focus Planner, we created a pre-order campaign for that, had many, many people a part of that. I mean, it was it was way more successful than we planned on. But as it became time to deliver on the date that we had promised, there was an issue with the fulfillment. And uh, I don't even remember the specifics of what went wrong. But at the time, it was like, oh, shoot, we are going to miss the, the day that we said we were going to deliver these. I and think it, it was a manufacturing deadline on the one hand. And then there was also some a, kind of shipping issue. Yeah, some kind of shipping issue. Too. Yeah, and those two things together, I, I want to say we were at least a week or two past the the date that we had promised, and that's the key word: promised our customers. We ended up deciding to expedite the shipping for uh, those planners at our expense, and it cost us about forty thousand dollars. Something we didn't technically have to do. I mean, it was you could say, well, it wasn't your fault, you know. But the truth is, as a matter of integrity, we had taken responsibility for the experience that our customers had, and we, you know, that was part of our vision. And so we decided to make that uh, investment really in our vision and in our integrity for the sake of our customers, and it was hard. It was hard, you know, and I think that it's not unusual. It's happened to me a couple times, but when you have a vision, there's always the temptation to to somehow, you know, create a shortcut, somehow compromise your integrity, you know, and you can do it in, in small ways. I mean, we live in a world of compromise and people say, well, you know, it's a little bit of a gray area. We didn't really promise that or we didn't get it in writing, but the promise you make to your customer, 
the promise, if nothing else, that you make to yourself about achieving that vision, you know, you really don't want to compromise that. Your integrity, maintaining your integrity is important. And oftentimes the thing I've seen, again, is that in maintaining your integrity, that becomes the lift that drives the vision forward. So for us, I think, you know, it proved to our team, it proved to our customers that we were serious about this vision related to their customer experience. So we were willing to to reach into our own pockets, even if it meant $40,000 we didn't anticipate spending, in order to make good on our word. And that's really what integrity is, making good on our word. There are a lot of metaphors for crisis leadership. I've heard it compared to fighting a battle or climbing a mountain or even facing a giant. But in this clip, Michael comes up with his own metaphor for leading in crisis, and I really like it for two reasons. One, I think it really communicates the concept well. And second, we put some nifty sound effects behind it. Now, this clip is also a great reminder of what is your best asset for leveling up your skill during a time of crisis, especially. This is from episode 116, How a Business Coach Can Help You Now. You know, Michael, we've talked about the fact as well that during the Great Recession, 2008-2009, you were leading a pretty large publishing company at the time, and I know you had a coach going into that recession. Were you tempted to cut that expense? Well, I certainly reviewed it because everything was under review. So we were trying to throw off all the ballast we could because that was a difficult time. And we were making making difficult decisions about which teammates stayed, which had to go. We ended up laying off about 20% of our workforce. So absolutely, I did consider it. But in the end, I decided not to. And I decided not to because I felt like I needed somebody that could help me get through it. So yeah, I compared it to this. It's, it's like whitewater rafting. And class one rapids are defined like this. Moving water with small waves that tug at the boat. It's a relaxing way to spend the day. Now, you could you could probably do that without a guide. Frankly, that's the economy we came out of. I mean, it was flourishing. Everything seemed easy, certainly in retrospect. Was it wise to have a coach? Sure. But lots of people got by without one. Class 5 rapids, waves up to 4 feet, long, difficult, narrow passages that require precise boat handling. Spray frequently washing over the raft, huge rocks that obstruct the flow, constant spinning and turning, a real danger of capsizing. Now, would anyone in their right mind take that on without a guide? I don't think so. In business, we were catapulted from class one to class five rapids in a matter of days. So a month ago, it was a good idea to have a business coach. Now, it's imperative. It's funny, Dad. I think that um, as you read that description, it's the perfect metaphor for what we've just been through. I mean, I think people probably feel like you just read their mail. Like, that's exactly how I felt. You know, it's like it's something that occurs in nature, but it's also something that we've all just been through together and we're still going through in many ways. So we need to get beyond this idea that coaching 
is a luxury. Yes. I mean, this is not a perk just for high level execs, like getting stock options, you know, or a company car or something like that. This is a normal part of intelligent business operations. Everybody needs ongoing training and leaders are no different. In fact, I feel like the stakes are so much higher right now than they ever have been to get it right, to make the right decisions at the right time. There's just not a lot of margin for error. We talked a lot about vision during the first quarter of 2020, and that was because, well, vision is always important, but also because Michael has a new book out called The Vision Driven Leader. Now, that book was released on March 31st, just after the worldwide pandemic really hit hard. But listening to this clip, it's amazing how insightful Michael's advice turned out to be as we're all now dealing with how to move into a new future. You know, when you're creating a vision, your perspective is that you're standing in the future and you're describing what you see. You're not looking around you in the present tense and describing what you see. That's a very, very different thing. And, um, you know, when we're in the present, our our attention is really limited. We're focused on constraints. And those things are kind of driving what we think is possible. So our current staffing, our current products, our current customers and market share. That's a recipe, if you're trying to create vision from the, from the present, of creating incremental change. And, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with incremental change. But that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about vision. We're talking about something much bigger than that. The other problem is it's really hard to get people aligned around incremental change because it's just not that exciting. It's frankly boring. Exactly. <laughs> and and so that makes it really difficult to accomplish goals and accomplish big objectives if they're they're just kind of a little bit better than they were last year or last month. It's it's tough to get people on board for that. One thing about standing in the future and describing what isn't is all of a sudden you're standing in the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Not what is, but what might be possible. And in that realm there really aren't any constraints. The only constraints you bring into the future are the ones you drag from the present. So if you can free yourself up from those, stand in the future and begin to think, suspend disbelief about how it's going to happen, but to begin to articulate what it is you see, that's really where you get vision. That's where you get excitement. That's what drives businesses forward and creates the kind of growth that we're talking about today. You know, I love the story that's in the book uh, about the creation of Uber. And uh, that's fascinating. You mind if I tell that real quick? No, please. Well, there's nothing new about a taxi cab. They've been around since, literally, since the automobile was invented. Uh, But one night in Paris, Garrett Camp and Travis Kalanick couldn't get a cab. And so instead of trying to think of ways to put more cabs on the street, they said, well, what if there was a way to get a ride without a cab just by hailing it on your phone? And that that thought was the genesis of Uber. That's thinking about what isn't and not what is. And, and the funny thing about it is, talk about not incremental change, but exponential change. Uber is now the largest ground transportation company in the world, and they don't own a single car. That's amazing. Yeah. Understanding how to leverage the best in both your team and yourself is one of the key attributes of a leader. And this question from our Q&A episode, which was episode number 106, really gets at the heart of this matter. 
Okay, a question from Matthew A. Anderson, and he asks this, is it okay to request another position in the company if you just don't have the passion or drive for the position you're in now? (laughs) Yes, please request another position, because probably if you have the self-awareness to realize that you don't have the passion for the position you're in, that's kind of the first step to leaving. Um, Or hopefully not, but finding yourself being terminated, you know, because there are issues in your performance. And I would always rather someone come to me and apply for another position or ask if there's a way to adjust the position they're in, in some way so that so that we both have a chance to kind of collaborate and to look for other opportunities rather than um, just have someone leave, you know, I'm always disappointed. Um, Fortunately, it doesn't happen often, but I'm disappointed when someone leaves because they're dissatisfied with the position when that's usually a solvable problem. um, If you're in a large enough organization or a high growth enough organization, if you know ahead of time. What would that kind of conversation sound like? Well, you know, if if I were going to have this conversation myself, you know, I think I would go to my supervisor and just say, hey, I want to share something with you that I hope um, that we can find a a great win-win solution together about, you know, I love serving this company. I would start with the things that I love. I love serving this company. These are the things that I enjoy the most about my work here. These are the things that I'm really grateful to have been a part of. But one of the things I'm learning about myself is I feel like I can make my greatest contribution in this area because I, you know, while I'm proficient at doing this other thing, I'm lacking passion. And I know that passion and proficiency together are kind of like the the duo that makes me really effective, that makes me able to make my highest and best contribution to the company. I know that's that's what you care most about. So I'm just wondering if there are perhaps some other opportunities that exist or will be existing in the future um, that I could apply for or be um, considered for because I love this organization and I want to stay, uh, but I just don't have that feeling that I'm making my greatest contribution. So that, that language of contribution is really all about what you're bringing to the table for the benefit of the company, not coming to the conversation with, I don't like my job and it's your job as my director supervisor to fix that for me. It's right. not my job as your direct supervisor to fix that for you. That's your problem. The thing I would add to that too, is I think that I would say to my supervisor, look, this isn't urgent. This is something that we can take some time to think through. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not giving you an ultimatum because right. uh, I'm committed to the company and I'm willing to continue to serve in this role until we can find something else. But I'm just trying to give you a heads up so that we can make the best and highest use of, of me so that I can benefit the company even more. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit back to what you said a bit ago, Michael or Megan, I can't remember which of you said it, but it's uh, it's about selling yes. Yes. and show your boss or your supervisor what's in it for them and for the company, That's not right. just you. Yep. Hey, everybody. Mike Boyer here with a pretty cool idea for the hot days of summer. If you're loving the insights from this highlight episode, why not go back and download some of the episodes that you may have missed over the last six months? They're all live on iTunes, or you can listen at lead2.win. If you love this best of content, there's plenty more. Download a few shows for that long summer drive or your early morning run. And don't forget to subscribe to Lead to Win so you don't miss any great content going forward, practical tips, and actionable advice. We've got it for you every week on Lead to Win. Subscribe now on iTunes or wherever you listen. Now, back to the show. Now let's go all the way back to December 2019, which honestly feels like something out of a history book at this point. But this clip features Megan Hyatt Miller and her husband, Joel Miller, who is also the creator of the new Full Focus Pocket. Little did they realize at the time they recorded this, but just weeks later, 
many people were going to have to figure out how to manage work from home with both spouses finding space in the same house along with, in many cases, kids home from school. This episode is called How to Have Two Successful Careers in One Happy Marriage. I really love this because it's such an important topic, especially now, and it's really great to hear this from two people who are actually doing it very well. Joel and Megan, here's a concept I want to get your opinion on. Jennifer Patiglieri, in her book, Couples at Work, she mentions a concept called couple contracting. And she says this involves in-depth discussions in three areas between partners, values, boundaries, and fears. And she goes on to say, negotiating and finding common ground in all three gives couples borders and direction for the path that they will walk together. And she refers to that as contracting. Mm -hmm. How does that strike you? Is that what you're talking about, making a contract together or a deal? It is kind of like a deal, because if you think about it, all of those inherited social norms, they're all deals too. They just right. got struck without your awareness That's right. and you're just operating in terms of, of that contract. Mm -hmm. So now that that contract is a little problematic to employ or maybe not even, not even tenable in your own relationship, now you have to kind of like open it up and renegotiate it. Right. I like that idea. I haven't read that book, but I'd like to. And I think those are good categories, especially when you consider the fact that really emotions are, uh, part of what make this conversation so difficult at the end of the day, deciding who's going to unload the dishwasher and who's going to pick up the kids and who's going to take the dog to the vet. Those are not in and of themselves inherently emotionally charged. It's kind of what we believe those things represent right. and who should do them and why we think a certain person should do them is where the difficulty is. So I really like that. And I like thinking about kind of a vision for your marriage and your partnership before you even get into this, because I think if you have a perspective of equality that's really big and, and kind of exciting, like what could we do together if we were both 100% all in here and, and right. we weren't just pushing stuff off on one person, what would that mean for us? Yeah. I think the other side of equality, which sounds very angular at one level, is generosity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember reading an article by Emily Smith in The Atlantic years ago now called Masters of Love, I think the title was. And it was about the way relationships uh, work in terms of the most successful relationships. They These scholars looked at marriages that were really successful, and they called those folks the masters. And they looked at folks that were not so great, and they called those folks the disasters. And if you wanted to be a master of love versus the disaster, kindness and generosity were like the the one operative thing that popped out in, the, in these relationships. So when you think about generosity as a part of equality, like I'm going to give in order to help make this work, uh, it's, I think that's, that's the easiest way to approach what equality might look like. I love that. And I think that's one of the things that you have done really well and modeled, um, in our marriage is that you, we've been married by the way, for just about 11 years, yeah. we have five kids. Um, so we have some water under the bridge there, but I think that you have done a great job of choosing kindness and choosing, generosity when you could have chosen something else. And I think that that goes a long way to building trust for this conversation that we're talking about. And by the way, you know, if you're, if you're thinking, okay, all that's great. I'm in, you know, but how do I start this conversation? Here's just like kind of a few 
few tips for you. First of all, um, you need to practice self-awareness before you even get to the place of, honey, we need to have a conversation about this. You need to ask yourself, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling that? What's not working for me right now? And get some perspective on your own internal landscape before you show up at this conversation. Yeah. You actually do this well for me, which is to challenge my narratives. I have 62 stories going in my head at any one time. And at least, you know, at least four of them are true. Um, and (laughs) you have a really good way of, of just asking me the kind of questions that enable me to get to that place of self-awareness where I'm, where I'm actually questioning things in a useful way. Um, the real step is, can you do that on your own? Cause you need to do it on your own. Sometimes when you walk into a conversation and you're not self-aware, you know, that's sort of like walking into a room with, uh, the lights off. You're going to like bump into the furniture. It's mm, a good point. Also, you need to assume positive intent in your partner. Um, this is a concept that comes out of one of our favorite business books called the loyalist team. Mm-hmm. And it's an idea where you're committed to speaking candidly to each other, to telling each other the truth. Um, but you're doing it from a basis of trust where you assume always that the other person has your best interest at heart, that they want good things for you, that their intentions were positive, even if, um, the outcome or the actions that followed those things were, uh, misguided or problematic in some right. way, which often they are because we're people. Yep. Um, but you know, when you, when you look at your spouse and you say, I trust that you want what's best for me, yeah. that you have my best interest at heart. And even though we're not aligned on this right now and it's not working that I trust who you are, um, even if I don't like what you're doing right now. And that's a really good place to start from. Well, and if there, if you know that there's a pre-commitment to kindness and generosity and that in your partner, then it's really easy to, to trust them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if, like you said, there's disagreement or misalignment, you at least know that they want what's best for you. You at least know that uh, they want to, to give and to be generous. If in that moment, there's no clear path to that. Or if in that moment, that generosity failed somehow, that's not, a deep crisis. That's just like a circumstantial problem that needs to be solved. The next clip is from the episode titled How to Diffuse Conflict Before It Begins. That was episode 105. And in it, Michael and Megan explored five steps to diffusing conflict. Stop, probe, acknowledge, confess, and explain, which together create the acronym SPACE. Now let's listen as Megan and Michael take a deeper dive on step number four. That brings us to the fourth step, which is C, confess. This is a tough one. This is where the rubber meets the road. Um, whether you're a spouse or a friend or a leader or a parent, this is the part where you have to acknowledge and you know affirm, really confess what it is that you've done that was wrong. And this is like really unpopular in our culture. You know, we're we've kind of like gotten out of the habit of being able to admit when we're wrong. And the more of a power differential there, as you said earlier in our conversation, that there is, the more difficult this can be. But if you don't do this step, you will not get resolution. There is a wonderful book 
dad that you and I read years ago called Extreme Ownership mm-hmm. by Jocko Willink, all about taking ownership of your mistakes and the results that happen, particularly in your business. You know, it's kind of through the lens of a Navy SEAL. Um, at one of our core values at Michael Hyden Company is total ownership, that we believe that as individuals, it's our job to take total ownership for the outcomes that we create yeah. in our business and our personal lives. And that means being willing to say, I am so sorry that I did and fill in the blank. You know, that this is kind of where you've just repeated back what they understand to be the problem. This is where you own your contribution to that. And it does not help you to diminish it or to make it smaller or to try to save face. That will only hurt you. This is like, this is the moment where you either build or undermine trust in the relationship. And, you know, one insight I got on this uh, word confess was, frankly, from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the Greek word from which we get the English word confess means literally the same word. You know, that's a transliteration. So to say the same word as somebody else, to agree with them, and again, maybe we disagree with 90% of it, this is not the time to correct their impression or to say, oh, well, you totally misunderstood me or whatever. No, it's to agree with those things that we can agree with and to literally ask forgiveness. And it might sound like this, you know, Megan... I'm so sorry that I did, and then literally state it. I'm so sorry I did this. And again, I think it's important to use the same words in, in as much as you can, use the same words they use so mm-hmm. that they feel like you're confessing to the actual thing that they're yeah. charging you Don't with. pick like a lesser word. Right. You know? Well, um, I'm sorry I made that mistake when it was a flat out violation of the of, of boundary. Our last clip is from episode 113, which was released very early during the pandemic. Many of us have found ourselves working from home, and here Megan offered one of those great, wow, I never thought of that before, sort of tips. If you are working from home and struggling to keep your focus and tune out distractions, this is going to help. This might be my very best tip of all, (laughs) especially for those of us who are trying to figure out how in the world to get our work done with our kids home at the same time. You know, for the last few weeks, I've been recording a couple of podcasts every week. I've been doing webinars, Facebook lives, basically a bunch of live uh, streaming or live broadcasting where my kids walking in would be you know, not really a welcome thing or having them loud right outside my door. My office is right at the front of my house next to my front door. So if the dog barks, you know, you're going to hear it or the kids are out there playing. So my solution is that I actually have two of these noisemakers right outside my office door in the entryway of my house, right, kind of tucked into a little corner. And the truth is I'm rarely distracted. I mean, this this has been a huge lifesaver for me. I want to say they're maybe around $40 a piece. You can get them on Amazon. Um, They come in a bunch of different colors. And there's some Something about the particular frequency that they use that really is effective at cutting out uh, background noise. These are, if you have ever been to therapy or maybe even some kind of a doctor's office, you will often see these in the hallway outside of doors because they're just that effective. So for me, this is one of my real secrets to success when working at home when there are a bunch of other people at home. Now, this is something we actually use in our physical office as well. We haven't been there in a month. But uh, but that's something we use in our physical office because our office is built for collaboration, primarily a co-working space, but just for our team. But it does help create a psychological space 
when you don't necessarily have a physical barrier. I want to mention one other option if you don't want to buy the machine, and that's I've got the white noise mm-hmm. application on my iPhone, and that's actually great. Like I use it every day when I take a nap, and you know this crisis is a good good time to take a nap so that you can stay you know rested and show up as the best version of yourself. But the white noise generator, the white noise app is a great way to do that. And it's not just white noise. They have brown noise, which is my favorite. They have, uh, you know, streams, rain, rivers, oceans, wind. I mean, a gazillion different kinds of sounds, whatever mass kind of the distractions and the noisy stuff that would keep you from doing your best work. You know, I, uh, I use the dome white noise machines when I'm trying to keep noise from coming into my office, particularly if I'm doing something like this, like a broadcast or recording of some type, but if I'm trying to focus and therefore, you know, I really don't want to hear anything. I'm not so worried about the sound bleeding in, but I just, I want to kind of quiet my own mind. One of the tools that I love is called focus at will, which is a subscription music service that's been engineered for productivity and focus. That's something I learned about from a friend a long time ago and have really, really found it to be something I go back to over and over again. So that's another great solution. Come on. You learned that from me. What do you mean? Oh, it it was from Stu. (laughs) Really? Our buddy buddy Stu. Yeah. He got it. it Stu McLaren. Well, that's it for this edition of Lead to Win. I hope you found some actionable insight in these highlights. And remember, we'll also have links to all the shows mentioned in our show notes today on lead2.win. And since Megan and Michael aren't here with me today, I guess I'll wrap it up with my own final thought. And that's this. I believe your best days as a leader are still ahead of you. And uh, we all know 2020 has been extremely challenging so far. But, you know, we've learned a lot. And I think we're all better leaders today than we were on January 1st. And I really believe this can still be your best year ever. So stay safe out there and join us right here next week. Until then, lead to win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Leader Books, Michael Hyatt's monthly book club for leaders. You can learn more at lead2.win slash leaderbooks.